Welcome back to another episode of The Two View, the cutting-edge, informative, and interactive podcast for emergency department and urgent care NPs and PAs. This is episode lucky number 13, and we're ready to bring you our top picks and shop talk now. Here today is my faculty partner and friend, PA Mike Sharma. Wow, it has been a year of us. Happy New Year, Mike. Happy New Year, Martha. It's great to be Zoom to Zoom with you for the first time in 2022. We have a really awesome show for you today. Martha is going to talk about identifying and diagnosing illnesses and diseases that go along with a presentation of ocular nystagmus. That one always, always creeps me out when I see it in person. Then I'm going to discuss spontaneous coronary artery dissection, or SCAD, and scare the crap out of Martha. Awesome. Then I hope I won't scare our audience by discussing the hottest and latest meds, so Trimavab, Paxlovid, and Malnupiravir for outpatient treatment of COVID-19, as well as later ending with a special guest host, a fan favorite, Dr. Jim Roberts. He will discuss ivermectin and all its confusion and unpack a lot of data and fandom behind it. First, second time guest on the podcast. Thrilling to have Jim back. Before that interview, I'm going to go into some information about COVID testing and how do we even treat a pandemic disease that we can't even test for. More on that shortly. But first, Martha, why don't you start us off with some good old-fashioned physical exam pearls, the foundation of our medical practice. Ah, uh, yes. Never forget to see the trees in that forest. Sometimes it can get overwhelming and we get tired. So we need to fall back on our physical exam skills. Mike, the first topic I want to look right into, pun intended, uh. is the workup and diagnoses associated with the physical finding of ocular nystagmus. Our physical exams are so incredibly important. I'm currently teaching a fundamentals course on basic health assessment skills. And I remind the students that when cases seem confusing or when you cannot reach a diagnosis, if you go back and do a reassessment and focus on physical exam findings, you will be able to narrow down your differential and most likely be able to determine what is wrong. The answer almost always lies in our good history-taking physical exam and vital signs. So with that being said, I really wanted to discuss a great opportunity to expand your physical exam capabilities and break down this physical finding of nystagmus. Nystagmus is an involuntary, rhythmic, side-to-side, up-and-down, or even circular motion of the eyes that occurs with a variety of medical conditions. We typically want to determine if it is from a central cause, like from the brain, or from typically a less severe peripheral cause, like from the inner ear. Nystagmus can have causes that aren't due to underlying disease or diagnosis as well. Examples of benign nystagmus include a family history of nystagmus, looking out the window of a train or car as you're driving by, just spinning in circles like doing little bat spins for fun, or maybe even intoxication. As emergency clinicians, we care about nystagmus as a red flag or harbinger of something bad, like a stroke, a bleed, MS, or a tumor. Yep, could be a lot of things. But before we get into all the terrible things that nystagmus can be, let's talk about the ways it can present and the complaints that often accompany it. I'm only going to focus on adult cases of nystagmus because pediatric nystagmus is a lot more complex and concerning at times. With that being said, primary care or urgent care peds with nystagmus, um, you know, most often they require a workup uh, with ophthalmology and neurology, especially if they're having other physical findings, growth delays, seizures, vision loss or changes, headaches. Um, so I think We'll pause on peds for now and send those new onsets of nystagmus to the ER or a specialist. So let's talk about the adult patient with nystagmus. 
oftentimes the patient will sign in with eyes are weird or dizziness or spinning. Nystagmus alone itself is a condition that causes these, you know, repetitive or involuntary eye movements, like you said, but it can affect either one or both of one's eyes. The involuntary movement can have some several different forms, right? So it can go up and down vertical, side to side, horizontal, or in a circular motion, which we call rotary nystagmus. The patient has trouble focusing, okay? And they'll have dizziness or spinning and their eyes will just move in these certain patterns depending on the cause of their nystagmus. And we're gonna get to that shortly. When you have a patient follow your finger or a pen, their eyes are gonna dart quickly back and forth, okay? So that's what you're gonna look for. Right, patients may have a symptom associated with a new onset of nystagmus. They may have dizziness, headache, vertigo, or even balance issues. Nystagmus can understandably impact vision, balance, coordination, even depth perception. The most common patient I see with nystagmus is a patient with dizziness or vertigo. Their primary care team may have noted it or even maybe missed if it was very subtle, and it can be acute or it can be more chronic. But now you're seeing the patient in your emergency department or urgent care, and their symptoms are worse. That's why they're here in front of you. Our job is to determine, is this nystagmus benign and maybe even baseline for this patient or is it related to a central cause in the brain or is it coming from some sort of peripheral cause right so excuse me patients with nystagmus do need to get a physical exam and neurological exam a full ENT exam with the proper equipment. Nystagmus is not always just a benign or peripheral cause. When you see nystagmus, it's crucial you determine what the eyes are doing and how they are doing it. Then check things like balance, coordination, pupillary response, and cranial nerves. If you find anything else abnormal, you'll need to start piecing together the neurological puzzle. And sometimes I refer to this to my students as the torturous day of things I can't figure out without an MRI or neurology. So these are, these are sometimes the things I need to do. Um, but again, you know, also my students say, oh God, that's going to take me so long. I got to do a physical exam. I got to do an ENT exam and I got to do a neurological exam. Honestly, if you get really good at this, shouldn't take you very long at all. So nystagmus with dizziness or vertigo also warrants some extra fun questioning, and I like to throw this out here. Uh, Any history of head injury, repetitive as a child or adult, recent head injury. You know, people don't often give you their information right off the bat. You kind of have to dig it out. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Any drug use or intoxication, long-term aspirin use, other medication use, supplements, history of this in the past, headaches? And if so, tell me all about your headache. I want to know what they're like. I also want to know about seizures as a child or an adult, fevers, rashes, any eye pain, ear pain, recent illness. These are all some golden questions I like to put on my list. But let's break down these peripheral versus central causes of vertigo, which both can reveal nystagmus on your exam. Remember, this is an hour-long podcast, so we aren't going to get into the nitty-gritty of stroke, brain bleeds, tumors, MS, and all the inner ear disorders. We just want to discuss some things that are related to the findings of nystagmus and where you might want to take your workup. Yeah, that would be like a multi-series podcast episode, uh, you know, campaign here. But for now, the key is recognizing and identifying the types of ocular movements and taking that solid history. I love all those questions you brought up, Martha. If neurology is going to be consulted, they're going to want to know all of those answers and what exactly was abnormal on your exam and what the nystagmus looked like, vertical, horizontal, rotary. 
if the nystagmus is caused by something like from a peripheral cause, it's something usually from the inner ear and not the brain or a central cause. Some examples of those include benign paroxysmal positional vertical OBPT, BPPV, vestibular neuronitis, Meniere's disease, labyrinthitis, that can be caused by a recent viral infection of your inner ear. How about a uh, perilymph fistula? That can be due to a head injury or a sudden pressure change, like from scuba diving. You've also got superior semicircular canal dehiscence syndrome, or SSCDS, which could be due to a breakdown of part of the bony canal that carries fluid into the ear. These are all generally annoying causes of vertigo, nystagmus, and dizziness, but usually are not true emergencies in the sense of an admission, hospitalization, emergency surgery, stuff like that. Right. So here are the keys, all right, the golden things here about peripheral causes of nystagmus. The nystagmus associated with peripheral causes is usually unidirectional with a fast component toward the normal ear. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Never reverses direction. It is also horizontal, not vertical. And most times it's not rotary either. Remember, when you walk these patients with nystagmus, they often can walk. They can do it. They usually have their walking and coordination preserved. They may also experience some tinnitus, but the key here is that what makes it not central is that there are no other neurological findings with their nystagmus. Some of the central causes of nystagmus are often linked to the concerning findings on the exam and history in an abnormal neurological exam. Vertical nystagmus is never a normal finding, and any nystagmus that reverses direction when the patient looks one way is also very concerning. These patients often cannot walk. They have instability. They'll fall. Their ataxia is truly, maybe cerebellarly abnormal, and they won't have tinnitus or other inner ear findings. These patients with central causes will also have things like diplopia, dysarthria, dysphagia, focal or lateral weakness, and persistent or severe or different headaches. Their nystagmus is related to something that is no good, okay? Finally, we're going to post a video of a patient who presented to the ER. This is a patient I had recently, one month ago, with rotary nystagmus and dizziness who had a headache for one year, okay? I know that sounds crazy and painful, but her diagnosis ended up being MS after she had an abnormal MRI in-house, and her exam revealed this abnormal nystagmus that was concerning for a central cause, so an emergency MRI was obtained. Her MRI showed new periventricular white matter hyperintensities or densities on the T2 MRI images. And you might see that a lot on your reports, okay? You actually might see that because it can represent other things. But she followed up with neurology and was diagnosed and treated for MS. I'm no radiologist. I have mad respect for those well-trained physicians. But being able to look at an MRI after their formal read and pick out those white areas on the scan is a great skill to acquire. Recognize what they're saying is abnormal and correlate it with your exam. Look at those pictures. Clearly, there are many more years of education and training behind reading MRIs. Those white patchy areas are the key findings in patients who have MS. Uh, but they may present, like I said, with other complaints associated with nystagmus, headache, or dizziness. So don't get too confident. But hyperintensities or, or densities on uh, the MRI could also mean things like strokes, tumors, Lyme disease, HIV, lupus. So don't rely on your reading. Make sure you have that neurologist, um, specifically the neuroradiologist, get involved with your case. But take a look at those pictures.
a picture truly does say a thousand words as they say. I think that's the saying anyways. So check out some MRIs and take a look at our video of that patient with nystagmus. That will be on our website. It is always twoview.fireside.fm. That's the number, twoview.fireside.fm. Another quick word on the Dix Hallpike Maneuver. The Dix Hallpike Maneuver is used to identify benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, or BPPV, nailed it that time, a peripheral cause of nystagmus with dizziness and vertigo. This test is performed by rapidly moving the patient from a sitting position to the supine position with the head turned 45 degrees to the uh, left side or the right side, you pick a side, and after waiting about 20 or 30 seconds, the patient is returned to the sitting position. If no nystagmus is observed that time, you repeat the procedure on the other side. Each time, each time you turn the patient, this clinician is looking for nystagmus and asking about worsening symptoms. Nystagmus and worsening symptoms indicates a positive test. And, you know, it's important to note that patients may actually improve with repeat testing. You know, like with this maneuver or Epley maneuvers, doing that again and again, because sometimes what we do is we're restoring the equilibrium of the vestibular system, more specifically the semicircular canals, and that treats the symptoms associated with BPPV. If the Dix Hall Pike test is negative, though, it makes this BPPV less likely of a diagnosis, and we should really more surely consider central causes or involvement. The negative predictive value of this test is not 100%. Some patients with a history of BPPV will not have a positive test result. The estimated sensitivity is 79%, along with an estimated specificity of 75%. So... If you can't get a good test, the patient is telling you other things that are concerning or you do have a high suspicion for central causes, then proceed with a further consult and workup. Yeah, right. Very good, Mike. The The Dix Hall Pike Maneuver is really the gold standard for BPPV for that diagnosis. The ex, uh, exclusion um, or dangerous etiologies of vertigo <coughs> should be the clinician's primary concern, of course, requiring excellent history, physical exam skills, as we mentioned. This test also takes practice, so watch a few videos to refresh yourself online if you need to. We'll put some links in the liner notes. The overall idea of the Dix Hall Pike and Epley maneuvers is that, you know, once central etiologies have been ruled out, if BPPV is on the differential, then this maneuver can, you know, help diagnose the problem and actually help treat them. Also, looking at a meta-analysis of data performed on the Cochrane collaboration concluded that the Epley maneuvers were effective for treating BPPV. But there was a high likelihood that there was going to be a recurrence of symptoms. So if you look at one of the articles we posted on how to do the test, a collaborative team is encouraged. So nurse practitioners, physician assistants, the physicians should be familiar with the procedure and um, looking for all these different signs. Uh, an interprofessional team approach for the evaluation of any patient with vertigo can provide the best patient outcome. So get your friends to help and share the case. You'll have better outcomes, plans of care for the patient. And remember, exams can change and your physical exam and your findings should always be reassessed in these patients in your care area. Now, Mike, are you going to talk about the half somersault maneuver or what? Yeah, so this is the thing. Uh, and I, I wish I knew the full story behind this, but the, the essential parts of the story is there was an ENT physician who suffers from BPPV, 
And she mechanically figured out this thing that you can do, this maneuver called the half somersault maneuver that she did, and it helped her BPPV. So when I get a patient who has BPPV, or I think it is, I'll put in their discharge paperwork, hey, go ahead and YouTube or otherwise look up a video source for this half somersault maneuver. And it is a treatment that can be very helpful in terms of uh, treating BPPV, figured out by a physician who suffered from the same condition. So a pretty cool story behind that one. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go to segment two. All right. So I want to talk about something that I don't remember much teaching about, if any teaching about during my time in PA school about 10 years ago. It's called spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD. And it's an unrecognized and potentially lethal cause of chest pain in young people, most often young women, like you, Martha. Please don't give me another illness or disease to have. The listeners have heard too much about my personal problems. I would like to die at 99 like Betty White in my bed. It's like, screw all you people who plan to come to my 100th birthday. Gotcha. You know, my birthday (laughs) is April Fool's Day, so. Oh, boy. Okay, well, in a time where more is being asked of us than ever before to move faster, to see more patients, to do it in hallways and waiting rooms, and to do it all with less staff, I think it's really important that we know about conditions like SCAD. Because, let's be honest, who hasn't gotten a young patient with no traditional ACS or PE risk factors, who's under a lot of stress, and who comes to your emergency department or urgent care worried that they're having a heart attack. I'll be honest, my traditional reaction is, let's do a chest x-ray, let's do an EKG, and I'm going to have you out of here in about 30 minutes. But these are the exact patients who may be at higher risk for SCAD and that may need more of a workup. My contribution to SCAD awareness is this case presentation. Imagine this fictional case, uh, sorry, imagine this fictional patient, a 40-year-old, very athletic woman, you know, we all probably have that One very fit female friend at the peak of her like physical conditioning. So maybe you imagine her. And if you don't have one, then again, you can think of our friend Martha here with her her Peloton and her boxing and all that. Imagine. (laughs) I am very fit. No, I know. That's why I said that. Yeah, that's why. why, why In case someone doesn't have a friend, they can think of you, you know. (laughs) So imagine this very physically fit woman is pregnant in her third trimester. All right, I'm not that. Okay, there you go. Well. Yeah, so this is where it diverges a little bit. Imagine this very fit woman is pregnant in her third trimester. It's her first pregnancy, and she is absolutely thrilled. But she comes to you having steady chest pain for the past couple of hours, and when you ask her more about her history, she says that she was in the middle of a big weightlifting workout, really pushing some heavy plates, and she got a phone call from her OB telling her that her precious baby looked like they had a serious birth effect, and that they had to meet to plan for what to do next. It's all been kind of a blur for your patients since then, but her chest pain started somewhere in there. All right, that's your patient. You know, I often find that I remember certain rare conditions or special situations better if I've got a patient in mind from my past that I treated personally. So if you are like me in that respect, then maybe that can be your patient, a physically fit 40-year-old woman, no comorbidities, pregnant, lifting heavy weights, who got a terrible phone call. Now, I just read a great review article on SCAD from the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, Jack. And by the way, if they are not encouraging increased readership of their journal by telling folks that they should get jacked, then they're wrong. (laughs) 
Go ahead, ACC. You can have that one for free. Anyways, that article is from August 2020. It's a great summary of not just how to recognize SCAD, but also how to handle a return visit to the ED for someone who previously had SCAD before. And best of all, it's not paywalled. Like, say, the New England Journal of Medicine review article on SCAD from December 2020. Both of those links will be on our website, twoview.fireside.fm. All right, so SCAD is exactly what it sounds like, spontaneous. So without trauma or plaque rupture, like you might see in a typical acute coronary syndrome or aortic dissection, one of the coronary arteries dissects. There's two theories on how this might happen. The inside-out theory, inside-out theory, suggests that there is a tear in the lining of the arterial wall and the blood forces its way into the tear. The outside-in theory, right, this outside-in theory which may be more common process that happens, it is when it's, uh, is that a split forms between the different layers of the arterial wall and that a hematoma forms and widens and spreads into the lumen of the artery. Either way, this dissection blocks the flow of blood from going downstream, causing ischemia and infarction. Most commonly, the artery involved is the left anterior descending, the widowmaker, as they call it, right, as we call it. Or in this case, I guess the widower maker, because again, this happens in mostly in women. One estimate is that 90% of SCAD cases are women with the average age around 48 years old. That means roughly half of the cases are younger than that. So way younger than we think about ACS in women. Thankfully, even if nothing about this feels traditional, at least the presentation in terms of an ACS-like presentation is quite traditional. According to the Annals of Emergency Medicine abstracts from October 2020, over 95% of these patients have chest pain, okay, or more specifically, a feeling in the chest pressure or weight, and 85% describing radiation to an arm, both arms, or the shoulders. Nausea, shortness of breath, and diaphoresis are also common features of SCAD happening in about 20% of the patients. I love the infographic that the Jack article has illustrating risk factors for SCAD. Other things that you can be asking the patient about in your history or listening for. The first one's easy. Recreational drugs such as methamphetamines and cocaine, which you should really already be asking about with chest pain, especially in young people. Keeping in mind our initial fictional patient, here are some more risk factors. Emotional stress. Intense exercise. Valsalva or straining, pregnancy and sex hormones. Now, pregnancy-associated SCAD most often happens actually during the immediate postpartum period, but really can happen at any time during pregnancy. Hopefully you can see how our fictional patient really ticks all those boxes off or most of them. Maybe she can be a memory aid for you for this condition. One special comorbidity that increases the risk of SCAD is something called fibromuscular dysplasia. It's a condition that can lead to narrowing and aneurysms, alternately, of arteries. You might be wondering about connective tissue disorders like Marfan syndrome or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but it seems like those conditions are present in only a minority of SCAD patients. So Mike, I hear what you're saying, but I also hear what you're not saying. So tobacco use, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, obesity. These are all a lot of things that we use to risk stratify traditional acute coronary syndrome patients, and there is not an overlap between those risk factors and the risk factors for someone to have SCAD. Okay, so we've got this patient in front of us. She has all the risk factors for SCAD, and now it's time to work her up. This is a patient with chest pain, so an EKG and chest x-ray are no-brainers. More severe SCAD will result in ST elevation in the leads corresponding to the affected artery. 
However, some SCAD will not produce EKG changes, so ordering cardiac biomarkers like troponin are important as well. At some point with SCAD, you will get increasing cardiac biomarkers. This could be an important point where you need to advocate for your patient. There could be some pushback when you're getting, uh, when you're ordering biomarkers on a young patient with no traditional ACS risk factors, especially if it's going to prolong a discharge in a patient that might otherwise get a quick EKG, chest X-ray, and discharge. But again, you order what you feel comfortable and do it if you think it needs to be done. You might be thinking about advanced imaging. We get CT angiograms for aortic dissections. Why not go for the coronary artery dissection? Uh, yes and no. You might be able to order a coronary CT angiogram. However, these studies are only identify a dissection playing less than 15% of the time, and they are truly difficult to read. You need to have them specially read by a, a trained radiologist. In fact, one place I worked in wouldn't even do them because there was no one to read them. But I digress. Other things like changes to the lumen or a hematoma in the sleeve-like distribution may be seen more often. So consider communicating with your radiologist about what your concerns are and what you found on the workup to help them know what you should be uh, looking for together as a team. These studies are even less diagnostic if we're using an older generation scanner or if there's motion artifacts. So don't be reassured by a negative angiogram. Awesome. Makes my life so much easier, Mike. Yeah, unfortunately, the donor of truth, as we like to call the CT scanner, is not super helpful here. Well, let's say we worked out the patient, and maybe the picture is clear for SCAD after the workup. Or maybe it isn't. It's time to consider treatment strategies. If you have a patient who's looking like a STEMI or an NSTEMI, but SCAD is a possibility based on risk factors or other things, this is where we want to be very careful about giving a thrombolytic or taking a patient to the cath lab where communication is very important, especially, you know, as PAs or NPs, we are often the first ones touching the patient, perhaps in a provider and triage setting, and then another clinician handles the back end of the disposition. Communication is also important if you're the one consulting with the cardiologist. Here's why. Traditional stemming and STEMI treatments have increased risk of complications or straight-up harm in SCAD. We know that thrombolytics can cause increased harm in aortic dissections. They're associated with increased harm with SCAD as well, and that makes sense. You want that inside-out spreading hematoma to stop bleeding and spreading. PCI is also associated with iatrogenic worsening of the dissection or other complications as well. So what the heck do we do then? In a stable patient with anatomically mild disease, a conservative, watch and wait approach is probably the right one. A majority of SCAD patients who are stable and manage conservatively, nothing invasive, recover with healing of their dissection within 30 days. However, in an unstable patient or a patient with anatomically more severe disease, let's say a left main dissection or a multiple vessel dissection, that would look, by the way, different on EKG changes, would look different on a diagnostic coronary CT angiogram than a single vessel dissection, then you want to consider maybe a coronary artery bypass graft or a cabbage, especially if PCI is contraindicated or failed. Yeah, well, once you catch a patient with SCAD, it's likely they'll come back to your ED again. So let's talk briefly about what happens after SCAD, okay? Patients with a recent SCAD commonly have chest pain afterwards, sometimes for months, and understandably, is going to bring them back to the ED. The workup is essentially the same. Don't get tunnel vision and think something else um, 
couldn't be happening like a PE, but we're still taking care of thrombolytics and invasive procedures, excuse me, taking care with. Um, so these patients should probably be on at least a low-dose aspirin for a year after SCAD. So check for that. For SCAD patients who had PCI, some uh, recommend a dual antiplatelet therapy regimen. Right. So that's things like aspirin plus clopidogrel, which is Plavix, aspirin and prasadrel, which is Effiant, or aspirin and ticagrelor, which is brand name Belinta. And a lot of folks recommend that combo of the dual antiplatelet regimen for at least a few weeks after the SCAD event. But sometimes patients at high risk of bleeding events aren't given those things. And sometimes patients are continued on those therapies for longer. So other post-SCAD medications to consider are beta blockers, which may be associated with lower rates of recurrent SCAD, or ACE inhibitors or an ARB if there is left ventricular dysfunction. However, a lipid-lowering medication is not usually warranted in someone who, one, doesn't already have hyperlipidemia, or two, who doesn't need a lipid-lowering medication for primary prevention of traditional ACS. Right. This is a different beast than your usual STEMIs and NSTEMI patients and preventing those things. So that's spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD in a nutshell. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Don't fail to consider SCAD in a young, stressed out patient with chest pain, especially with risk factors like strenuous exercise, pregnancy, or that fibromuscular dysplasia. Take a second to listen and be prepared to advocate for your patient. Their heart is in your very capable hands. All right. Moving on to segment three, we're going to talk about three drugs. So Trimavab, Paxlovid, and Malnupiravir. So if you don't want to hear about anything COVID, we totally understand. But the next few segments will be very special um, and of value to you. We really do feel that way. Your patients are going to ask you about these drug treatments for COVID, and we want to give you the latest and greatest on each. This information is coming right from UCSF and San Francisco General Hospital, hot off the presses. There are recommendations um, for outpatient treatment guidelines uh, as of January 4th, 2022. The FDA has provided expanded use authorization, EUAs, for several treatments uh, for outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19 who are at high risk for progression to severe infection. There are these three drugs that I just mentioned and some guidelines and some consideration for their use. And our last segment is going to discuss uh, ivermectin. And uh, Mike's going to jump in there as well with some information about testing. But hang on, we'll get to those shortly. Back to outpatient treatments they are being used and recommended. Right. Before considering prescribing outpatient COVID-19 therapy, determine if higher-level medical care is needed. Refer patients for medical evaluation for any concerning condition, including worsening dyspnea, oxygen saturation below 94% on room air, confusion, dehydration, any need for lab testing or radiology, or for any social determinants of health that may impact their ability to access care for worsening symptoms. I, I've done that myself. Like we, I, I work at a job where we give these antibody infusions. And so we had already gotten a line on somebody and we were ready to push the infusion. And whoops, the, the tech informed me at that time that the patient's OG sat was like 91 and they were looking really bad. And so it's like, oh shoot, you don't really qualify anymore for these infusions. Time to go to the ER. 
Now, your hospital may be a wee bit different than mine, um, but these are the inclusion guidelines for using outpatient COVID therapies and discharging patients with treatments of COVID. So first inclusion criteria is that the patient has a confirmed COVID infection by PCR, uh, NAAT, or NAT, or antigen testing, and this includes a home test. The patient has to be symptomatic with symptom onset within a specific amount of days. Now, this will be different for all three of the medications we talk about, so listen carefully when we bring those up. Additionally, the patient has to have mild to moderate disease, and I will define that in a moment. And the patient has to have at least one risk factor for progression to severe COVID-19 criteria, which is also going to be defined. So let's define a few of these things. So uh, you will have to explain this to a patient why or why not you're not, you know, doing something for them. So per definition, mild disease, individuals who have any of the various signs and symptoms of COVID-19, fever, cough, sore throat, malaise, headache, muscle pain, without shortness of breath, dyspnea, or abnormal chest imaging, and who do not meet criteria uh, for moderate, severe, or critical illness. Now, moderate is defined as individuals who have evidence of lower respiratory disease by clinical assessment or imaging and a saturation um, of oxygen that is 94% or lower. Some risk factors for severe COVID, okay, severe COVID include age greater than 65, BMI greater than 25, pregnancy, chronic kidney disease, stage 3B or worse, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, or lung disease, sickle cell, neurodevelopment disorders, medical-related technological dependence, all right, so these are like G-tubes or they have an implanted device, any condition or demographic racial ethnic factors determined by the clinician to raise risk progression, and any immunocompromising condition or anyone on suppressive therapy. I even heard one risk factor is not being vaccinated against COVID-19 as well. Those immunocompromising conditions that we just discussed are being defined as anyone currently receiving or within one year of treatment with some sort of B-cell depleting therapy like rituximab, ocrelizumab, ofatubumab, and afetuzumab, maybe HSCT or CAR-T therapy within two years of transplant, multiple myeloma on therapy, uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia on therapy, someone with a solid organ transplant and on immunosuppressive medications. Uh, how about things like severe congenital immunodeficiency diseases as well? Other hematologic malignancies on active treatment, other immunosuppressive conditions on active immunosuppressive therapy, CVID, or advanced or untreated HIV infections. So lots of things to consider with regards to immunocompromising conditions. Here are some exclusion criteria. So people that we will not give these therapies to. So those include people that are hospitalized for COVID-19. Now, again, that can be different based on your institution. So check on that. But generally, these treatments we're talking about are for our more outpatient managed people. Also, a new oxygen requirement. So something more than a baseline or changing oxygen demands and worsening oxygen requirements in those who previously needed oxygen. So if they are already on supplemental two for like COPD, as long as that is not increased for their symptoms, they will still qualify as being mild disease. But if they have to go up on their typical oxygen, that is exclusion criteria. 
Yeah, so patients eligible for outpatient COVID-19 therapy determine if the patient is less than 10 days from onset of COVID-19 symptoms. Um, now, this is only going to be for the sotrimivab, so they have a 10-day window. Some therapies um, can only be given within five days of symptoms onset, and that's the Paxlovid and the Malnupiravir. So let's talk first about sotrimivab. This is a monoclonal antibody infusion, or MAB. Monoclonal antibodies are laboratory-produced molecules that act as substitute antibodies that can restore, enhance, or mimic the immune system's attack on cells. Monoclonal antibodies for COVID-19 may block the virus that causes COVID-19 from attaching to human cells, making it more difficult for the virus to reproduce and cause harm. Monoclonal antibodies may also neutralize a virus. That's how they work. So as you know, previously we were using remdesivir. There are some new kids on the block. So back to sotrimivab. Sotrimivab is given to uh, outpatients 12 years or older who are also greater than 40 kilograms and over a 20-minute period, and then they do a one-hour observation time. Then they're discharged. Again, the patient has tested positive and has moderate to mild symptoms of COVID. The standard dose is 500 milligrams IV times one. There are no major drug-drug interactions known, but there is limited data for pregnancy and lactation. It is considered to be generally safe, though, for our pregnant patients. No renal adjustments or hepatic insufficiency adjustments. This drug is being used, again, for patients with moderate to mild symptoms positive for COVID, and the plan is to be discharged from the ER. Now, the Glasgow Smith-Klein website <clears throat> excuse me, has been following them, obviously, Uh, having disclaimers that they need to have on their website for their non-FDA-approved medication. They specifically state on their website, and we'll put the links in in the liner notes there for you, so Trimavab is authorized for the use under the Emergency Use Authorization for the Treatment to Mild to Moderate Coronavirus Disease in adults and pediatric patients 12 years or older weighing greater than 40 kilograms with a positive uh, COVID testing and who are at high risk for progression to severe COVID-19, including hospitalization or death. The limitations of the authorized uh, use, they specifically say limitations are who people who are hospitalized, who require oxygen therapy, or require increased baseline oxygen flow rate due to COVID-19. Right. So they also note benefit of treatment with citrovimab has not been observed in patients hospitalized due to COVID-19. So that's specifically in their work here. Um, These monoclonal antibodies can be associated with worse clinical outcomes when administered to hospitalized patients with COVID-19 that require high flow oxygen or are on mechanical ventilation. There's so much to know and review with all these like time frames and exclusion criteria when you're working with these patients, Martha, and these new drugs, it's going to take a village. Keep working as a team, discussing these within your hospital daily with your colleagues, with your physicians, and with each case for sure. Yeah, we know things are going to change and be different, and I 100% agree. Um, Let's talk about the next two drugs. The next one I want to talk about is the Paxlovid. So this is for anyone over 12 years of age, and again, greater than 40 kilograms. You have to have the moderate to mild symptoms. And this isn't an intravenous treatment. It's an oral treatment. It's a five-day treatment. And you take the following combined medications in a packet or pill prescription. This nermatrivilvir, 
300 milligrams. I'm sorry. I, I, Mike, I always feel like we say them wrong, but, um, <laughs> you know, they're tricky. And then it's combined with Ritovnavir. And this is basically, like I said, it comes in a pill packet over five days. And there are many, many drug interactions with this. And there's limited data on pregnancy and lactation. And a discussion with GYN for this one is essential. One thing you should note when you prescribe it to an outpatient that it may reduce the effect of hormonal contraceptives. So they should use an alternative contraceptive when taking this medication. It's really not recommended for anyone with severe uh, renal dysfunction, so you may need to do some dose adjustments or come up with a different plan, and you may also have to seek changes in HIV medication um, or dosing. There's a complex treatment plan with this medicine, and there's also a lot of side effects. They include diarrhea, high blood pressure, muscle aches, and fatigue. So Pfizer says about this, they have a disclaimer as well on their website. I won't read this one word for word again, but basically the same thing that we had going on with uh, Sotrimavab, its website, and the liner notes for you. I'll put that in there for you. Lastly, let's discuss Molnupiravir from Merck. Molnupiravir is an oral small molecule antiviral prodrug. This is for those who are 18 years older or older, and the dose is 800 milligrams, so it's four 200 milligram capsules by mouth every 12 hours for five days for a total of 40 capsules per the course. There are no major drug-drug interactions that are known, but this medication is not recommended at all in pregnancy. And patients who are lactating should, quote, pump and dump, as we say, for four days after the last dose. It may also decrease the effectiveness of birth control as well. No major renal or liver adjustments for dosing. Merck states that early treatment with molnupiravir reduced the risk of hospitalization or death in at-risk unvaccinated adults with COVID-19. So I added a link to the article in the New England Journal of Medicine on the molnupiravir for oral treatment of COVID-19 in non-hospitalized patients from December 2021 with randomized control trials. So those are the three drugs we wanted to discuss and how to use them, but you know, it's up to you when you use them and if you use them and your department. All of them still warrant a lot of discussion, testing, and trials. But it, again, it's up to you. Review the guidelines daily when looking to prescribe these outpatient treatments to mild and moderate COVID patients. All right, let's move on to our next topic. Let's slide right into it. Mike, how do you treat a pandemic when you can't even test for it? Right. In some ways, uh, by the way, I know I've said right like 15,000 times in this thing. It's my verbal crutch. I apologize, listeners. In some ways, in January 2020, we are now entering the tale of two cities phase of our pandemic for all you Charles Dickens fans out there. You know, it is the best of times. We have as much information about COVID-19 as we've ever had. And at least in the U.S., we have multiple vaccinations and even boosters available to us. And as we discussed in our last segment that on previous podcasts, there are multiple therapeutics available for both outpatients and inpatients, okay? If I get COVID, I'm thrilled to get it in 2022 as opposed to, let's say, March of 2020. And by the way, quick note on the Sotrovimab. I know a lot of folks are saying, hey, this is the only one that works against the Omicron variant. Guess what? People are still getting Delta variant COVID out there, and the studies on Sotrovimab versus Omicron are preprint, non-peer-reviewed, in vitro data only. So if what you have access to is one of the older cocktails like Regeneron or Bam Eddy, 
I still think it's worth considering using that on a positive COVID patient with high risk of worsening. All right. It's also the worst of times. Staffing shortfalls, stress, inpatient bed shortages are on the rise, and they're affecting all of us just as much as ever before, if not more. But amazingly, our capability to accurately test for COVID-19 feels like it is the hardest it has ever been. And what we do with that is going to be the focus of our next segment. There are suggestions, and it's kind of mixed data, that these rapid antigen tests, which were always of lower sensitivity in asymptomatic or mild or early COVID, that these tests are even less sensitive to detecting the Omicron variant. Again, it's kind of mixed, but there's talk about that, at least. And that Omicron variant, as we know, is rising rapidly in prevalence. The tests themselves, whether we're talking about the rat test, home tests, in-clinic molecular RNA testing, like the Abbott test, those are all short supply. Send out PCR testing is taking longer than usual because of the volume of tests that are being run and supply issues, personnel issues. All of these things translate into patients waiting longer for test results or in some circumstances being unable to test at all. And as we know, we have these drugs that are out there. Hey, great, we have these great drugs, except you have to take them within a certain time window. So patients are stressed out. And who gets to talk to these upset patients? We get to talk to these upset patients. You know, Mike, you showed me a question from a fellow advanced practice clinician that you found on social media. And we agreed that this is a situation that many of us are facing and we need to be adept at handling. So I'll paraphrase that question from this clinician. So patients are getting really bold nowadays, even threatening. I had a patient that came in for a sore throat. Based on their presentation, I did a strep test and it was positive. And I prescribed the appropriate antibiotics. As we were wrapping up, the patient said, oh, by the way, oh, by the way, don't you love that phrase? Oh, by the way, I need a COVID test. I explained to the patient that their presentation and their lack of known close contacts with COVID-19, a COVID-19 test was not indicated. A patient replied that I could not refuse their request for a COVID-19 test, and if I did, they would report me to the medical board. Has anyone else had this similar issue? What What do you do? <laughs> yeah, wow. I feel really bad for this guy. Lots of issues to tease apart here. First, people can totally have multiple conditions going on. I've had a patient with an impacted gallstone and an aortic section. When it comes to COVID, I've had a patient with strep in COVID, flu in COVID, even a TIA in COVID, and not even like an easy anterior circulation stroke. The patient had like COVID, vomiting, and weakness. Everybody has vomiting and weakness with COVID, you know? So that was a tricky one. One of my favorite rules of medicine is Hickam's dictum, and it says that patients can have as many diseases as they darn well please. So as much <laughs> as it is rare to have a patient with strep and COVID, it happens. And the low odds of that thing being uh, occurring together should not be a reason not to test. So I personally would not have used that as a reason not to test them. Well, I heard about a study back in, Al uh, in the Alpha Delta days that suggested 50% of people who were COVID-19 positive had no known close contacts with COVID-19. Oh, well, we should find that study. But assume everyone has a close contact and they don't use a lack of a known, don't use a lack of known contact, Okay with COVID-19 as a criteria not to test, okay? Basically, people don't know if they've had close contact because the disease is nefarious and sneaky and can be on anyone and they don't have to express any symptoms. So trust no one, Mike, no yes. one. 
patients can complain to the practice owner or the state medical board whether they have a valid complaint or not. We know this. We've all gotten uh, complaints about, you know, sometimes really kind of frivolous stuff. If you had a complaint to the state medical board, number one, it's important to understand the process there. Each state is probably a little bit different, but you would likely have the opportunity to formulate a response. I know at least in the state of Texas, unless a complaint is horribly egregious, clinicians are given the opportunity to respond to a complaint, and if the complaint is found to be without merit, the complaint is essentially tossed out. It's not actually logged on your license. You do not have to report it when future uh, situations here. So in the end, what do you do? It depends. In a resource-constrained environment, I think it's defensible to reserve your testing capabilities for when the result would change the next thing that you do. But many organizations are running out of testing capability or running into testing delays. So our ED leadership um, you know, is doing their own thing. We have a tent for testing. What are you doing in Dallas? Yeah, um, we haven't pussed out the tents just yet, although I know we have them. But they've directed us to be you know, really close hold on outpatient COVID-19 testing and stick to ordering it when it would make a clinical difference. For example, if it would enable someone at high risk of severe COVID to get, let's say, a monoclonal antibody infusion or Paxlovid or whatever sooner. In my urgent care, though, we're swabbing everyone that comes in, but sending out almost all those swabs for at least a one to two day turnaround, if not longer. In rare situations, we are using our limited supply of in-house molecular swabs. So these are, uh, you know, RNA, the NAT swabs, because we've got a really short supply of monoclonal body, antibody infusions, and we can give those immediately if they're indicated. And yes, I know there is mixed data on the monoclonal antibody infusions, but in the end, if someone's super high risk for COVID, it's worth buying a lottery ticket there, in my opinion. In my emergency department, again, uh, we're not even doing send-out swabs for lowest patients as of now, and that was directed by our leadership in the department as well as the hospital administration. The hospital even printed out a flyer about where to get COVID-19 testing, and I've been including a, a link for testing sites in all of my discharge instructions where COVID-19 was suspected, but we did not test them. I will put this link to uh, Health and Human Services in our website. That's, again, at twoview.fireside.fm. I would recommend you copy that into your um, you know, things, your discharge instructions when you're not testing somebody, because at least you're redirecting them as far as where they go. So... For my approach in the ED for low-risk patients, if I had a patient like this come in front of me, step one, you got to take the time just to listen to their story. Like, I know it's the 50th person you've seen that day with cough and nausea and weakness, but look, they've been rehearsing this story as they've driven up to your ER. They want to tell you their story. We all know it's incredibly frustrating to feel like you haven't been heard. So be the witness to their suffering for that one. Next is setting the stage with regards to explaining how common COVID is right now and that people everywhere are running out of testing supplies. Now, personally, and, and this goes very well, I feel like, I compare the current situation to flu season and how during flu season, we clinically diagnose people with flu all the time when community transmission is high and when clinical presentation matches the flu and that the safest thing is to assume that they have COVID-19, to assume that, to treat the patient in front of me instead of treating based on the results of a swab, which can be wrong and might cause me to think that this patient doesn't have COVID when they actually do. And patients kind of gravitate towards that. They say, okay, well, I want treatment. I don't want to be have a false negative. Next, 
I reassure them that we are recommending the right over-the-counter and prescription treatments. By the way, you know, you get benzonitate, you get benzonitate, everyone gets benzonitate. You know, it's I'd also great give that, them a pizza, okay? Why not? <laughs> and a, yeah, I mean, like, I, it goes great with benzonitate or vice versa, <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, you have prescriptions and over-the-counter medications that'll work whether they have a regular cold or COVID. And then there's a lot of folks who kind of believe that if you, if you don't leave with a prescription medication, you're kind of shortchanging the patient or the patients can feel shortchanged. So mesonotate is an easy one for me for our non-pregnant patients. Next, I'm asking patients to buy a pulse oximeter for home and they can monitor themselves for worsening with this device. It'll tell them when to come back. And lastly, telling them that they need, absolutely need to get testing for whatever reason, they can check out that link that we're providing in the show notes. Now, that approach for my low-risk patients, redirecting, reassuring, listening, giving prescription and over-the-counter therapies here, that's worked for 99% of my patients. I can count literally on one hand the worried well who are low-risk for severe disease who made a big stink about this approach. I think in that happens, again, go back to step one hear out exactly why they want to be tested because they want to be heard and use your best judgment in these resource constrained times. Sometimes folks are going to need to walk away unhappy and without a test, but at least we've heard their concerns. We've ruled out emergent disease and we've directed them on how they can have their needs met, which often is what we do in the emergency department anyways for other stuff. Yeah. Great, great information. All right, before we get to Jim's interview, I just wanted to uh, bring up something sweet. Now, I told you earlier I didn't have anything, but I decided that I wanted to tell everybody the 2021 uh, report from uh, the World Population Review on the safest countries in the world, okay? Safest countries in the world right now. And this is based on a variety of factors, Mike, okay? This is uh, related to ongoing international and domestic conflict societal safety and security, including COVID, uh, militarization, and uh, again, level of distrust, political instability, potential for terrorist attacks, number of homicides, rapes, all these different things, okay? So based on all these different factors, you know, they, they do this calculation, they look at, this, at these, uh, the information that they find in the data, and the 10 safest countries in the world, Mike, what do you think the number one safest country in the world is? Canada. No. Oh, it's on okay. The li- it's on the list. On the list. Okay. Next, I would go Switzerland. It's on the list, but I'm just going to tell you the list. Go ahead, right. please. You, di- you didn't guess the number one, but the number one safest country in the world, Iceland. Hmm. Number two, New Zealand. Number three, Portugal. I'd go there. Four, Austria, five, Denmark, six, Canada, seven, Singapore, eight, Czech Republic, nine, Japan, which I found interesting, Hmm. and 10, Switzerland. So So how far down is the United States in this list? (laughs) Do I want to know? I I don't think you're going to get to it very, uh, very far here. Um, Top 25, at least, I would think, right? Oh, gosh, Mike. You know, I'm gonna Are you scrolling through sc- it right now? I'm scrolling. <laughs> you're still scrolling. Did That's Mexico disconcerting. You're still scrolling. Russia still beat scrolling. us? No, I'm only kidding. Um, actually, honestly, I don't even see it on this list yet. So 
Uh, I'll put the link here to the the World Population Review by Country, and you guys can check it out yourselves. We can find us on there. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, my something sweet is a little editorial. Uh, I got to test my best friend, and we'll call him Steve for the purposes of this to, you know, kind of uh, blinding the patient, so to speak, de-identifying. I tested my best friend for COVID-19 the other day, and he was positive. And I got to give him an antibody infusion. Now, I have known this guy for over 20 years. Um, we are very close in many respects, um, and, and we go way back. And, and his kids know my kids and vice versa. We're, we're, we're all tight, okay? COVID-19 put him in the hospital on the first go-round, and then he got it again. And God love him, but he has some risk factors, and his lungs are still kind of jacked up from um, having COVID the first time, you know? I know the evidence of monoclonal antibodies is mixed, but he was understandably concerned. He had risk factors. We caught it very early, which is where infusions have the most benefit is very early in the course. We gave him infusions very early on and happy to report that he's already feeling better and he's very happy. His wife's very happy, that sort of thing. Uh, and that was just, uh, I may remember that for the rest of my life as far as fulfilling experiences in practicing medicine. Maybe no one else gets to have that experience of doing something like that for their best friend. But everyone we help, everyone we help is somebody's best friend or dad or mom or kid or brother or sister. You know, I got through that Delta wave a few months ago and, and I looked back when it was over and it, it felt like going through PA school in the sense like I did it, but there's no way I could do that again. Here we are looking into the future with Omicron, and it looks like we're going to have to do it again. You, listener, are doing so much, and even if your administration is generally appreciative, your physicians are generally appreciative, your colleagues are generally appreciative, they don't know how much we do. We don't even know how much we do. We touch so many people's lives just by going to work. And our wish from the two of you for you in 2022 is that you somehow are able to appreciate the work you're doing and the lives you're touching every single day. What you do is important. Thank you for saying all that, Mike. Very, very poignant and wise words, um, especially since by the end of January 11th, 2022, there's going to be 8 billion people on the planet. So if you'd like to take a look at the population world clock, uh, I also put that in the liner notes. All right, um, we're going to get to our uh, live interview here with uh, uh, Jim Roberts. Don't forget that if you want to check out Jim's In Focus column, you can go to www.em-news.com and you will see his publication on ivermectin in the next month. So be sure to check that out. All right, let's move on to our interview and guest host, our oblique view today. We'll introduce our guest host today. It's Dr. Jim Roberts. If you've been following the show, our courses with the Center for Medical Education or have worked in emergency medicine within the last week, then you probably know Jim. Jim, uh, we usually set aside an hour for your intro, recap of awards and publications, legacy and emergency medicine. But today, can we just get right into the questions? Would that be all right with you? Sure. Well, <laughs> 
I got I got to say something about Jim. Okay, so Jim is one of the original faculty members for the Center for Medical Education in the '80s. Uh, he was one of the first emergency medicine doctors in the country. Is a board certified emergency medicine physician and toxicologist, which I think plays in very well to our discussion with him today. He has written a very well-known procedures book, if not the book of procedures in emergency medicine called Clinical Procedures in Emergency Medicine by Roberts and Hedges. He was the chairman of his emergency department for decades. He's won numerous accolades, uh, teaching awards, ASEP awards, has run many residency programs, is still an avid writer and columnist and the chair of the editorial board for Emergency Medicine News. This upcoming month, he is publishing a column in his 30 plus year running in focus column for Emergency Medicine News on Ivermectin. And we know this is going to get a lot of attention. I actually told Jim, don't do it. Don't write it. I think it's a horrible idea. Scrap it, write about something else. He said, no, I think I'm, I'm going to go for it. So, Jim, tell us. Just tell us all about it. My son said I shouldn't do this either because there are terrorists out there that if I say something wrong, they're going to come after me. So, well, anyway, whenever there's a, a medical problem or, or a, uh, uh, an epidemic or anything of that, the, the, the public and some of the medical profession goes nuts. They just go off the deep end with their recommendations and their evaluations and COVID is a perfect example of the, the public and a lot of medical professionals going crazy. They, uh, they just uh, uh, have all these sorts of recommendations that they have no basis in fact. And um, very, very emotional. It's a very emotional topic. A lot of people are dying from it. A lot of relatives are dying from it. Uh, the public will do anything they can to get a, a drug that can cure their loved one. And with ivermectin, uh, some of you have gone to lawyers to sue hospitals to make them give the drug. Uh, and the, it's, there's no proven uh, way to do that, but you know, you, you're a doctor, you don't want to get sued for not giving a drug that some crazy jury in, uh, is going to say that you should have given it to them because so-and-so thinks it would have saved your life. But uh, uh, ivermectin is an uh, anti-parasitic drug. Actually won a Nobel Prize about 15, 20 years ago, but it's mostly a, a drug for animals. For, uh, and it has some indication from the FDA for, for two parasites in humans, some of which no one will ever see or remember, but it is not recommended for COVID or any other indication. However, in the last year or so, the number of prescriptions written for, for ivermectin has gone 25 times the prior number. And you can buy it on the internet. You can buy the um, veterinary product, and you, who knows what you're getting. Veterinary product is oftentimes very, very con concentrated. Uh, and uh, if you go on the internet and look under under Google under under ivermectin, you get a lot of interesting comments on it. Uh, it goes from most people saying, like the NIH or the uh, the FDA, saying it has no value. Let's see. Uh, let me see what the uh, what the uh, the. Uh, NIH basically said in February 2021, there's insufficient evidence for the COVID-19 treatment guidelines panel to recommend it either for or against the use of ivermectin for the treatment of COVID-19. Results are adequately powered, well-designed, and well-controlled studies are needed to provide more specific evidence-based guidance for the role of ivermectin for the treatment of 
COVID-19. In other words, uh, they don't have a recommendation. And in fact, the NIH, the FDA, uh, the World Health Organizations, no one recommends the use of ivermectin for COVID-19. Uh, there are some recommendations from a variety of kind of fledgling groups. There's one called the Frontline COVID Critical Care Alliance. And if you go on the internet, you'll find that they reviewed 26 studies. All of them said that it was helpful, saved lives, decreased uh, illness. None of those studies were from the United States. They were from uh, Bangladesh, Nigeria, Pakistan, India. There were no well-controlled double-blind studies from the United States. Yet the authors concluded that this was a drug that should be recommended and it was valuable. They have since withdrawn their, their article, which is in a publication called the uh, American Journal of Therapeutics. You can get that on the internet, where they came in and went through all these, <clears throat> these studies. They have withdrawn that, they're saying, because they were criticized that the data was not, was not adequate or not, not sufficient. So <clears throat> the NIH, nor, nor none of the American Medical Association uh, or any formal group in the United States recommends ivermectin for the treatment of COVID. So Jim, I'm, I looked at that link that you sent from this uh, task force here, and they said that they based their recommendations on giving ivermectin to begin with on existing data. They list uh, one through 11. Um, an 11th reason was the World Health Organization has long included ivermectin on its list of, quote, essential medications. That was actually one of the things that they quoted as to why they were uh, supporting it. But they also said things like uh, that the ivermectin inhibits the replication of many viruses, including influenza, Zika, dengue. They also said that ivermectin inhibits SARS, COVID uh, replication and binding to the host tissue via several observed and proposed mechanisms. It has anti-inflammatory properties. It diminishes viral load. Uh, it protects against organ damage in multiple animal models. I mean, they go on and on with some of these quoted studies. Again, none of these... Um, American studies, uh, very interesting and and kind of bizarre reasons as to why this medicine is being used. Now, I that brings me back to the very beginning here. Why was this chosen? How was it something that people thought, oh, hey, this would be useful for COVID? Well, about a number of years ago, somebody decided to test ivermectin against COVID. They did it in a basically a laboratory situation where they used doses that were 50 times the number you'd give a human. And what they found out was that it was effective against the virus. It killed them, decreased the replication. And uh, then it was it was concluded from that because in, in the dosage you would never give a human, which is 50 times that was, was considered toxic, it worked. Now, why they came up with that, I don't know, but there was laboratory evidence uh, for its use and that's how it got started. Somebody glommed onto it and took it on as, as, their, as their calling to, to, to support that uh, as its use. Now, it's been studied a number of times um, in the United States, never been proven to be of any value. Has some harm, but usually it's been a relatively safe drug, causes some GI upset, has some neurologic toxicity and overdose, but the drug itself doesn't kill you, just that it has no value for COVID, proven value. Well, so you say it doesn't kill you, but it has a lot of neurotoxic uh, effects. So if let's just say, you know, let's let's put this in the real world uh, 
patient here. If you get the patient that comes in and they've taken a, a significant dose of this and they're having symptoms, what would be some major side effects, uh, tox toxicologically speaking? Yeah, well, you wouldn't get side effects from the small doses that are recommended uh, by physicians. But uh, the veterinary products, like I said, can be many, many times more potent than human products. Uh, mostly it's GI toxicity, nausea, vomiting, headache, dizziness, can cause some numbness, tingling. Uh, there was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, about three months ago that, that, that looked at the called into a, the poison center in Oregon, and they had 20-some patients that had taken this drug. Almost all of them had bought it themselves over the Internet. They weren't prescribed by a physician. And they had a variety of, of complications, but they were not. Nobody died. Nobody got really sick. A couple went to the ICU, but it was mostly neurological problems. The treatment would be basically supportive. Uh, benzodiazepine, if they had a seizure, if they're agitated, uh, but it, is, it has, has minimal side effects, and there's no there's no basically a, a way to treat it that's specific. But uh, if you take it in relatively small doses, it's not very toxic. Large doses produces, uh, I've not seen any deaths reported actually from it, but um, I suppose it could. But, you know, people are crazy. They'll, they'll take, you know, one, one milligram is good, so 50 milligrams is 50 times better. Oh, we know it. Yeah. So, Mike, um, you know, we've heard cases actually recently, there was a large case in the news about a PA who got into a lot of trouble prescribing ivermectin. In, in your uh, clinical course here, what have you seen and what are some of the questions that you have about it? Yeah, I'm still seeing patients as recently as last week coming in, um, having had prescribed, uh, been prescribed ivermectin by their physicians, uh, even clinicians, you know, uh, advanced practice clinicians uh, that are coming in as patients having been prescribed these medications by physicians. And so uh, this is, you know, really, I think, still worth talking about in 2022, because even in very medically educated folks, there is still a lot of people hanging their hats on ivermectin. And, and I, you know, I think that it's funny, you have so much passion going either way. And, and from what Jim just said there, just that statement of, ah, you know what, it's minimally toxic, there might be some side effects, but in the end, like it's supportive care, that language is seen by some as dangerous. You know, like, no, we have to be really coming out against ivermectin and saying it's going to kill people. It's a horse drug only. Uh, I think there needs to be a middle road here, okay? We need to respect the patients that are coming in that are on these medications. Um, we take uh, a stance of hearing them first before kind of poo-pooing them, pulling out that drug from their, their purse, and, and giving the truth. The truth is that minimally toxic, but the risk of toxic side effects far outweighs any proven benefit, like Jim is saying, with regards to COVID-19 treatment. Yeah. You know, I actually don't think this is going to go away for a very long time because if you, again, I'm looking at this task force um, that you mentioned, Jim, and they also say that they want to use ivermectin in post-COVID-19 syndrome. So these Long haul COVID patients is what they describe them as. That's approximately 20, uh, excuse me, 10% of the cases that were seen in these studies. And by the way, in this document, which you said was really interesting, I, I said, let me look at it. I'll see how interesting it is. And I looked at it and it is extraordinarily interesting. Every sentence is, uh, is quoted with some kind of study, some recent study 
supporting literature. I'd have to go and read all those specific cases. But again, they're using this ivermectin in the post-COVID syndrome, and they're saying that it's the only thing that we can do. We're going to prescribe it for four to 12 weeks and, and see what happens. And, and so it's not going away for a very long time. I just think that the, the viewers of uh, this particular uh, program just ought, ought to know that uh, it's not supported. And uh, I don't recommend that uh, maybe in the future it'll have some proven value, but it gives false hope to some people. And again, they misinterpret what you say. If they say, well, it can't hurt you, uh, well, then I might as well try it because, you know, you know my, my seat's not on a ventilator for two weeks. Why don't I get a lawyer to make the hospital give it to them? Because it might, it might work. And these guys from uh, South Africa say that it works. Well, so, Jim, what, what should we do when a patient comes in and demands this as a prescription? I mean, how are we approaching this? Because it's going to happen. Well, I think, first of all, you got to acknowledge that you know, you're, you're aware of the drug. You've read all the studies on it. Uh, for your for your for my information and from reading the science about it, it's of no value, and I wouldn't recommend giving it. And I wouldn't I wouldn't write a prescription for a drug that I don't think has any value and could be uh, could have side effects that are harmful. So you know, as much as I'd like to give it to you for your uncle or for you, uh, I'm not going to do it. It's just it's why don't I give you uh, you know some other drug that somebody recommends on the internet? It's just it's no it's just not done. Well, your task force here goes into a prophylaxis protocol, early outpatient treatment protocol, and other suggestions involving the following, vitamin D3, vitamin C, melatonin, zinc. I mean, they're going to say, should I do this? Should I do that? There's even some studies on aspirin. Um, you know, I mean, this is just so overwhelming. Patients are going to pull this paper out and say, I mean, for those, let's just say, very rare few, but let's just say someone comes in with this and says, how can you argue with this? And I'll say, what do I say? <laughs> say, well, you don't agree. It. It's not really science. You know, I can understand your concern, but it's false hope. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to support it because it, it has no proven value, could be harmful. And you just got to figure something else to do. Well, now, patients don't like that, but they don't like so that. Anyway. Are you going to be my expert uh, consult witness when I need you for a a, a jury? Well, when you get when you get prosecuted for prescribing it, I'm not sure I can help you. <laughs> but I might be able to do it if you get prescribed for not prescribing it. I don't think I can afford you these days. No, that's pretty can. So, last couple questions here. If you are going to prescribe this medicine, let's just say that you are a listener and you've been prescribing it, and you want to continue to prescribe it, what would be some risks, if we're talking about legal stuff, um, if something does go wrong? Well, I guess, the, you know, you can always get sued for anything if there's a bad outcome. So the, 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 if I were, you know, if I took the drug and, had, and, and, my, and my friend or me had a problem with it, I'd say, the doctor shouldn't have given it to me. You know, it's not proven, and he shouldn't have given it to me, and he's at fault there if I'm going to sue him for $2 million. And a lot, you know, usually they'll win. Uh, but um, it's uh, it, it was a tough line. I think you're in more trouble by giving the drug than you are by not giving it. Very good advice. Sage, wise advice. Well, Jim, we really appreciate you being here and giving us some information on ivermectin. I still feel very confused about everything that's going on in the world. But you know what? I was like that before COVID. So there are now two new oral drugs that have been approved by the FDA for the treatment of COVID-19. Uh, they're oral drugs 
and they, they're uh, uh, they're proven and seem to have a fairly good benefit. So you may hear from them in the future. You, it's very hard to get the drugs because they're not very many. It's uh, what are those drugs? They are right. We talked about them earlier in the podcast, which we didn't have you on here, so yeah. um, we we did go over those in, in great length. However, that is true, and it is hard, and that would be another. Uh, probably 30 minutes of discussion about to prescribe or not to prescribe uh, with you, especially some of the legal benefits um, or cons. So, um, yeah, with that being said, Mike, you got anything else for Jim? I mean, we have one of the foremost emergency medicine physicians in uh, the profession. He's a toxicologist. Is there anyone we should talk to about this? I, I, don't, I can't see a further expert on this than, than Jim. And so, Jim, we thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. Well, you're very kind. I appreciate that accolade. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Okay, bye. The two view trivia answer time. All right, so the question was, first, what do they win? This month, we are giving away 20% off our July bootcamp course and a lunch with the faculty. So win this and you can come join us in Las Vegas this July and share your ER experiences with us over a good meal. So here we go, two view trivia question. Yeah, you may get to see a Dr. Bucata eat like 100 shishito peppers. That was really impressive in November here. Don't uh, remind me. Yeah, he's probably still burning from that. All right, uh, well look, here is last month's question and answer. The question, both chicken pox and shingles are caused by the same virus. Varicella zoster or the VZV virus. What does varicella mean and why is it called the chicken pox? Martha. Here's the answer. So varicella is a Latin word used to tell the chicken pox shingles virus from its much more dangerous relative variola, which causes smallpox. Zoster is part of the virus name because it is the Greek word for girdle. A common symptom of shingles is a painful rash that forms like a band or girdle of blisters halfway around the waist. And shingles comes from the Latin word singulum, which also means belt or girdle. And the name, these red spots, which are about one-fifth of an inch to two-fifths of an inch, were once thought to look like chickpeas or garbanzo beans. Another theory is that the rash of chicken pox looks like the peck marks caused by a chicken. <laughs> So let's go to this next question. Mike, let's read this month's question. All right, here is the new two-part two-view trivia question. Email us your guesses at twoviewcast at gmail.com. It is always the number two, viewcast at gmail.com. And tell us who you want to give a shout-out to in addition to your two-part answer. So here is the uh, question. Okay, uh, Martha and I were talking about how hard we've been working recently, how hard everyone's been working recently. What popular idiom or saying involves what facial body part and a grindstone, and how did it originate? Again, what popular saying involves what facial body part and a grindstone, and how did it originate? So we want to hear the part and the origin of that saying. All right, guys, can't wait to see your answers. All right, so for more information about us and our faculty, visit our website featuring all our upcoming courses at www.ccme.org and consider coming to see us in July in Las Vegas, post-vaccine, of course, but we will have lots of other courses available to you online as well. 
Check out all our home study courses, farm course, heart course, EKG course, imaging boot camps, and more at www.ccme.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Two View in 2022. All those twos, I love it, okay? You can subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. Search for Two View Emergency. That's the number two, View Emergency, and it'll come right up. Ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians get some two-view goodness like you're getting right now. Now, if you like YouTube and want to see the video blog instead, search for Center for Medical Education and you can catch the video version. Don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics from today, including all the papers and sites we referred to. That is at twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple. Thanks again for tuning in, friends and EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us today at The Two View. Have a good day and a great shift.